0: All right, are you still with me? Are you still with me? A discovery of a world in the moon or a discourse tending to prove that tis probable there may be another habitable pl- had a, uh, another habitable pl- world in that planet is what we're reading. And the first proposition was that the strangeness of this opinion is no sufficient reason why it should be rejected because other certain truths have been formerly esteemed ridiculous and great absurdities entertained by common consent. Proposition number one. And proposition number two was that a plurality of worlds doth not contradict any principle of reason or faith. So he has first proved that it's not ridiculous and let me introduce you to my itchy dog in the background everyone and the second proposition is that a plurality of worlds uh that uh you can still believe in god uh the oh actually we never determined if it was like catholicism or some something else um Christianity, most certainly, that uh, you can still be a good Christian and believe in a habitable planet on the moon. And that brings us to Proposition 3 by Mr. John Wilkins. He wrote, Proposition Number 3, that the heavens do not consist of any such pure matter which can privilege them from the like change and corruption as these inferior bodies are liable unto. And I'm not totally sure what he means by that. So let's let's continue on and maybe we'll find out. It hath been often questioned amongst the ancient fathers and philosophers what kind of matter that should be of which the heavens are framed, whether or no of any fifth substance distinct from the four elements as Aristotle holds, and with him some of the late schoolmen, whose subtle brains could not be content to attribute to those vast glorious bodies but common materials, and therefore they themselves had rather take pains to refer them to some extraordinary nature, whereas notwithstanding, all the arguments they could invent were not able to convince a necessity of any such matter as is confessed by their own side. And there's a little asterisk by own. Apparently I can read that firsthand if I knew what col college, Cambridge college, maybe De Sailo? I don't know, man. Anyway. Uh, okay. So it sounds like we're going to be talking about the, um, oh what did he call it earlier? Um, what is all space made of back then? I can't remember the word that they use, but I said it in the last, I read it in the last, um, episode. That's okay. I'm sure we'll get to it again. Anyway, is, is space a substance or is it not? Uh, we just gave our dog a bath with like itch reducing shampoo, but he's still feeling it. I think, you know what? I'm going to take his collar off real quick. One second. Okay. We're back in business. I gave him some belly scratches and took his collar off. It were much to be desired that these men had not in other cases as well as this multiplied things without necessity as and as if it and as if there had not been enough to be known in the secrets of nature have spun out new subjects from their own brains to find more work for future ages he keeps going back to this he's like these people are making busy busy work for us i shall not mention their arguments since tis already confessed that they are none of them of any necessary consequence, and besides, you may see them set down in any books of uh, De Cailo. Same guy in that footnote, I'm not sure who that is. But it is the general consent of the fathers and the opinion of Lombard that the heavens consist, consist of the same matter with these sublunary bodies. Okay, so I think maybe actually heavens he's talking about the planets, not necessarily the space between the planets. Ambrose is confident of it, that he esteems the contrary a heresy. Okay, true indeed, they differ much among themselves, some thinking them to be made of fire, others of water, but herein they generally agree that they are all framed of some element or other. For a better confirmation of this, you may see Ludovicus, Molina, Euseb, Nirembergius, with diverse others. The venerable Beattie also uh, thought the planets to consist of all the four elements, and tis likely that the other parts are of an arius substance and will be showed afterwards. However, I cannot now stand to recite the arguments for either. I have only urged these authorities to countervail Aristotle and the schoolmen and the better to make way for a proof of their corruptibility okay so he's arguing that planets are corruptible I I, mean, I think that just means changeable maybe I don't know the next thing then to be inquired after is whether they be of a corruptible nature not a uh, corruptible nature not whether they can be destroyed by God for this scripture puts out of doubt, which is 2 Peter 3.12. Didn't we already read that, though? Pretty sure that was the same one we already read. Okay, yeah, so I do think that he's talking about whether things can change in the heaven. Okay. Nor whether or no, nor whether or no, in a long time they would wear away and grow worse, for from any such fear they have been lately privileged but whether they are capable of such changes and vicissitudes as this inferior world is liable unto. So we're the inferior. Does that just mean that we're below them, that we're below the other worlds, like they're in the heavens and we're down on earth? I don't know. The two chief opinions concerning this have both erred in some extremity, the one side going so far from the other that they have both gone beyond the right, whilst Aristotle hath opposed the truth, as well as... Stoics. All right. Proven Aristotle wrong again. Okay, some of the agents have thought that the heavenly bodies have stood in need of nourishment from the elements by which they were continually fed and had so diverse alterations by reason of their food. This is fathered on Heraclitus, followed by the great naturalist Pliny, and in general attributed to all the Stoics. You may see Seneca expressly to this purpose in these words. Uh, I'm not going to read this Latin. Speaking of the earth, he says from thence it is that nourishment is divided to all the living creatures, the plants and the stars, hence were sustained by many constellations. So laborious, so greedy, both day and night, as well as their feeding as working. Thus also Lucan sings something in, in Latin. Um, that's weird, because I we kind of already talked about this, you know, being fed, but I don't know. Maybe he's going to go into some deep proof that that's not the case. Kind of hope not. I don't know. We'll see. Unto Ptolemy, also, that learned Egyptian, seems to agree. When he affirms, okay, now we're talking about Ptolemy. You know Ptolemy. Ptolemy. He actually spells it with the P, but with an E at the end. No Y. Which is interesting, because I see Y's all over the place where they shouldn't be in this. Okay. Okay. Uh, that learned Egyptian Ptolemy seemed to agree when he affirms that the body of the moon is moister and cooler than any of the other planets by reason of the earthly vapors that are exhaled unto it. What? Earthly vapors exhaled unto the moon make it moist, apparently. You see these ancients, you see these ancients, wait, what is he saying? You see these ancients thought the heavens to be so far from this imagined incorruptibility that rather like the weakest bodies they stood in need of some continual nourishment without which they could not subsist. Okay. This is like the stupidest argument. Of course, yeah, hey, you know what? It was a different time. All right, but Aristotle and his followers were so far from this that they thought, you no, know, I already read that, didn't I? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that they thought those glorious bodies could not contain within them any such principles as might make them liable to the least change or corruption and their chief reason was because we could not in so long a space discern any alteration amongst them but under this i answer okay here's your answer so basically they didn't see any changes within their lifetime so they thought that they never changed and that they couldn't change that's what the ancients thought apparently okay so oh here we go we have three three uh reasons for why this is not the case. One, supposing we could not, yet would it not, okay, supposing we could not, yet would it not hence follow that there were none, as he himself in effect doth confess in another place? For speaking concerning our knowledge of the heavens, he says, "'Tis very imperfect and difficult by reason of the vast distance of those bodies from us, and because the changes which may happen unto it are not either big enough or frequent enough to fall within the apprehension and observation of our senses no wonder then if he himself be deceived in his assertions concerning these particulars i like that argument so they're just so far away that the thing, the changes that are that are happening are so small that we just can't see them that's actually very true okay number 2 Though we could not by our senses see such alterations, yet our reason might perhaps sufficiently convince us of them. Okay, so he's saying it's just reasonable that they change. He goes on and says, nor can we well conceive how the sun should reflect against the moon and yet not produce some alteration of heat. Uh, Okay, so he's saying if the sun's hitting the moon, it has to be making some kind of change based on it just heating up. Um. Okay, yeah. Uh, Diogenes, the philosopher, was hence persuaded that those scorching heats had burnt the moon into the form of a pumice stone. Cool. Okay, number three. I answer that there have been some alterations observed there. Really? Okay. Witness those comets which have been seen above the moon, so that though Aristotle consequences... So that, so that though, Aristotle's consequence were sufficient when he proved that the heavens were not corruptible, because there have not any changes being observed in it, yet this by the same reason must be as prevalent, that the heavens are corruptible, because there have been so many alterations observed there. But of these together, with a farther confirmation of this proposition, I shall have occasion to speak afterwards." in the mean space i will refer the reader to that work of shiner a late jesuit which he titles his rosa versina where he may see this point concerning the corruptibility of the heavens largely handled and sufficiently confirmed so is his only argument there comets that comets change <clears throat> i thought i was i thought he was going to tell me the moon changed okay well, there's one more paragraph in this third book. Well, actually, no, I don't think this belongs to number three. I think that was it. Um, Basically, what was the first one? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that we just can't see the changes because they're so far away. Two was by reason, oh, that heat should change it, given that heat changes things on Earth, I guess, is what he's trying to say. He, he would assume heat changes the moon. And then the third one was that we see comets change in the sky. Okay, moving on. There are some other things on which I might here take an occasion to enlarge myself, but because they are directly handled by many others and do not immediately belong to the chief matter at hand, I shall therefore refer the reader to their authors and omit any large proof of them myself as defining all possible brevity. I kind of think maybe we should skip this. So these are the things he's not going to go into because they're already... Let's see. The first is this, that there are no solid orbs. No, I kind of like this. Let's read it. The first is this, that there are no solid orbs. If there be a habitable world in the moon, which I now affirm, it must follow that her orb is not solid, as Aristotle supposed. And if her, why why any of the other? I rather think that they are all of a fluid, perhaps arious substance. Ah, I like, okay, he's finally getting to, like, his thoughts on the matter. St. Ambrose and St. Basil did endeavor to prove this out uh, out of that place in Issei, Issei, I don't know where that is, where they are compared to smoke, as they are both quoted by Rodiginus Esubius Narembergius doth likewise from that place confute the solidity and incorruptibility of the heavens and cites for the same interpretation he, interpretation of the authority of Eustatius of Antioch. Uh, okay, we're going to skip ahead of all this stuff because now he's just given a bunch of names. They all agree with him on this. Here's a quote, that this opinion comes nearer to the truth than that common one of Aristotle, which hath to no purpose filled the heavens with such real and impervious orbs, so he thinks they're areas, huh, okay, number two, there is no element of fire which must be held with this opinion here delivered for if we suppose a world in the moon, then it will follow that the sphere of fire either is not there where it is usually placed in the in the concavity of his orb or else that there is no such thing at all, which is most probable since there are not any such solid orbs that by their swift motion might hear and enkindle the adjoining air, which is imagined to be the reason of that element. Okay, whatever, I don't know. He mentions Tycho again. Three, I might add a third that there is no music in the spheres, for if they be not solid, how can their motion cause any such sound as is conceived? Does he believe in this music of the spheres? I don't know. I do the rather meddle with this because Plutarch speaks as if a man might very conveniently hear that harmony if he were an inhabitant in the moon. But I guess that he said this out of incog, incogitancy and did not well consider those necessary consequences, which depended upon his opinion. However, the world would have no great loss in being deprived of this music Unless that sometimes we had the privilege to hear it, then indeed Philo the Jew thinks it would save us the ch- charges of diet, and we might live on that, yeah, on that easy rate by feeding at the ear only and receiving no other nourishment. Yeah, yeah, we already read about this. And Moses enabled to tarry forty days and forty nights. Yeah, we already read about that. Okay, it may suffice that I have only named that f- these three last, and for the two more necessary, have referred the reader to others for satisfaction. I shall in the next place proceed to the nature of the moon's body. Here we go. Proceed to the nature of the moon's body to know whether that be capable of any such conditions as may make it possible to be inhabited and what those qualities are wherein it more nearly agrees with our earth. Well, that was Proposition proposition 3. We kind of blasted through that, huh? Um, proposition 4 is not very long. Well let's get into it. That the moon is a solid, compacted, opacious body. Opacious. Do I have a definition of opacious? No. <laughs> Must be old English or something. Uh okay, so I thought he was saying he thought it might be Arius. Isn't Arius gaseous? Am I wrong about that? Should I look that up? Can I find that? No. I can't, so I'm not gonna. Um well, let's just get into it. Okay. Is the moon solid? Well, he's gonna say that the moon is a solid. Compacted, opacious body. I shall not need to stand long in the proof of this proposition, since it is a truth already agreed on by the general consent of the most and the best philosophers. This is philosophy, you guys. This is not science we're doing right now. He's just philosophizing. Okay, one. It is a solid in opposition to fluid, as is the air, for how otherwise could it bear back the light which it receives from the sun? It is is solid in opposition to fluid, as is the air. So he's saying, it's not fluid and it's not air; it is solid. For how otherwise could it bear back the light which it receives from the sun? So how could it reflect the light? Why couldn't it reflect it if it was a uh, fluid? <laughs> is my question? Are you going to explain this to me, John Wilkins? Well, let's see if he does. But here it may be questioned whether or no the moon bestow her light upon us by the reflection of the sun of the sunbeams from the superficies of her body, or else by her own illumination. Okay, so is it illuminating, is it giving off its own light, or is it reflecting? Some there are who affirm this latter part, that it is giving off its own light. So these guys, I'm not going to, oh, Julius Caesar is one of them. And their reason is because this light is discerned in many places, whereas those bodies which give light by reflection, can there only be, can there only be perceived where the angle of reflection is equal to the angle of incidence. And this is only in one place as in a looking glass whose beams which are reflected from it cannot be perceived in every place where you may see the glass, but only there where your eye is placed on the same line whereupon the beams are reflected. Okay, so what he's saying is what apparently Julius Caesar said and four other guys was that the moon has to be creating its own light because when I look at a mirror, for it to be reflecting, well, when I look at a mirror and a light reflects off it, my eyeballs has to be perpendicular to that mirror for me to get the light in my eye or to the angle of incidence he's saying I mean we know how mirrors work I don't have to explain that so my uh, before I read the next paragraph the answer is that it's a it's a sphere and therefore it doesn't reflect the light off in only one direction it reflects light off in all directions let's see if he comes to the same conclusion as me but under this, I answer that the argument will not hold of such bodies whose superficies, I don't know what that word is, surfaces, obviously, is full of unequal parts and gibboposites <laughs> as the moon is. Gibbop, gi, no, G- gibbosities, gibbosities. That is a word and a half. Gibbosities as the moon is. Oh, does that come from like gibbous? The moon is gibbous when it's um, greater than half, right? When it's waxing gibbous? I don't know. Anyway, wherefore, it is as well the more improbable as the more common opinion that her light proceeds from both these causes, from reflection and illumination. Oh, now. Okay, so first he's saying it's because it's not... um, It's got a bunch of little bits, right? Like it's not a smooth surface. It's got like like rocks and stuff on it, I think is what he's saying. But then he says that now is he agreeing that it might give off its own light? Okay. Wherefore, it is as well the more probable as the more common opinion that her light proceeds from both these causes, from reflection and illumination. Nor doth it herein differ from our earth, since that also hath some light by illumination, for how otherwise would the parts about us in a sunshine day appear so bright when as all the rays of reflection cannot enter into our eye? Oh, so he's saying the sun is reflecting off all sorts of stuff on the earth. It's not all coming directly from the sun into our eye. It's bouncing off the ground and hitting our eyes that way. That's good. Yeah, I like that. But I'm not I'm not sure if he's agreeing that it's illuminating itself, that it's, that it's producing its own illumination. Let's keep going. Oh, actually, that's the end. That was was bullet point one of Proposition 4. He did not say that it was round. Isn't that a pretty good argument? Because it's round, it reflects light everywhere. Like, because it's spherical. I think it is. Anyway, two. Uh, Remember, we're talking about that the moon is a solid. Okay, number two. It is, oh, no, okay. Actually, the proposition is that the moon is a solid, compacted, Opacious body and i believe bullet point one is that it is a solid and now bullet point two is that it is compacted number two it is compact and not a spongy and porous substance but this is defined by diogenes vitellio and Reinodulus and some others who held the moon to be of the same kind of nature as a pumice stone and this and this say they is the reason why in the sun's eclipses There appears within her a duskish, ruddy color, because the sunbeams being refracted and passing through the pores of her body must necessarily be represented under such a color. Why, though? So he's saying when, when we get an eclipse, the moon looks red. Yes, we all know that. But I don't understand why it needs to be red because the sunbeams being refracted and passing through the pores of her body must necessarily be represented under such a color. Okay, whatever. But I reply, if this be the cause of her redness, then why doth she not appear under the same form when she is about a sextile aspect? And the darkened part of her body is discernible. Oh, so I don't know what sextile means, but he's probably talking when it's a new moon, right? And the darkened part of her body is discernible. For then... Also do the same rays pass through her, and therefore in all likelihood should produce the same effect. And notwithstanding, those beams are then diverted from us that they cannot enter into our eyes by a straight line, yet must must the color still remain visible in her body. And besides, according to this opinion, the spots would not always be the same, but by diverse as the various distance of the sun requires. I don't get that. Again, if the sunbeams did pass through her, why then hath she not a tally as the comet? Oh, a tail as the comets. Why doth she appear in such an exact round and not rather attended with a long flame, since it is merely this penetration of the sunbeams that is usually attributed to be the cause of beards (laughs) in blazing stars? (laughs) Uh, okay, so he's saying comets have tails because they're not solid. The sun shines through them, I guess. Is his idea? Oops. Uh, let's see. Well, that's number two. I gotta say, not really impressed, impressed with these uh, explanations. Number three, it is opacious. Are we finally going to get to figure out what this word means? I mean, it's probably, maybe it's opaque. It's probably opaque. Oh, yeah, there we go. It is opacious, not transparent, or diaphanous, like crystal or glass, as Empedocles thought, who held the moon to be a globe of pure congealed air, like hail enclosed in a sphere of fire for then. Um, that's all he gives for three. (laughs) It is opacious, not transparent is what he says. (laughs) Okay. But then uh, now we have two more bullet points and I don't know if they're in response to number three or what we'll find out right now. One, why does she not always appear in the full? Since the light is dispersed through all her body. Yes, okay. I think these two bullet points are in response to it not being a crystal. The moon is not a crystal because, you know, he's asking, why would it not always appear full because the light would be dispersed through all her body? And number two, he says, how can the interposition of her body so darken the sun or cause such great eclipses as have turned day into night? that have discovered the stars and frightened the birds with such a sudden darkness <laughs> that they fell down upon the earth as it is related in diverse histories. Wow. So there's lots of stories about birds just diving to the ground huh? during solar eclipses. Um, no, but that's a good argument. I mean, that's why it's not crystal because it can block out the sun, right? Okay. And therefore, Herodotus, telling of an eclipse which f- fell in Xerxes' time, describes it thus. I think we have a translation after this Greek. The sun leaving this wanted seat in the heavens vanished away. All w- uh, I think that's it, actually. All which argues such a great darkness as could not have been if her body had been perspicuous. <laughs> I'm learning new words. Perspicuous. Do we have a definition? Yes, we do of an account or representation clearly expressed and easily understood. Lucid, okay. Yet some there are who interpret all these relations to be hyperbolical expressions, and the noble Tycho thinks it naturally impossible that any eclipse should cause such darkness, because the body of the moon can never totally cover the sun. However, in this he is singular. All other astronomers, if I may believe Kepler, being on the contrary opinion— By reason, the diameter of the moon does for the most part appear bigger to us than the diameter of the sun. And that actually we know is, uh, well, we know that the moon can cover the entire sun and we know that it depends on the, um, on the eclipse. Uh, sometimes the moon's closer to the earth than other times. So the, I think it's called an annular eclipse when, um, the moon is particularly far away from the earth and it eclipses the sun and therefore the body of the moon is, the radius appears smaller than the radius, the, circa, the radius of the sun. So it creates a ring. So I guess Tycho just never got to see one of those. I think they're rare, so. Okay, uh, but here Julius Caesar once more puts it puts in to hinder our passage. He does not like Julius Caesar. And one interesting thing I will note is that this time he spells Julius with a J. All other times I've seen it, it's been with a capital I. Interesting. Uh, okay, how does Julius Caesar hinder our passage, Mr. John Wilkins? He says, The moon, saith he, Julius Caesar, is not altogether opacious because tis still of the same nature with the heavens. Wait, was Julius Caesar a philosopher? I thought he was just a politician. Anyway. Because 'tis still of the same nature with the heavens, which are incapable of total opacity. And his reason is because pers- perspicuity is an inseparable accident of those purer bodies. And this, he thinks, must necessarily be granted, for he stops there and proves no further. But to this I shall defer an answer till he hath made up his argument. <laughs> okay, I don't even know what his... That explanation was, but I think it's hilarious that he says, John Wilkins says, I'm not even going to argue this until he gives me his argument. Okay, we may frequently see that her body does so eclipse the sun as our earth doth the moon. Yes, those are both true. Since then, the like interposition of them both doth produce the like effect that they must necessarily be of the like natures. I like that. Yeah, okay, so they can both eclipse each other, so why then they... They both appear the same, so they should both be the same nature. That is a like opacious. that is a like opacious, which is the thing to be showed. And this was the reason, as the interpreters guess, why Aristotle affirmed the moon to be of the earth's nature because of their agreement in opacity. Whereas all the other elements save that are in some measure perspicuous. I guess Aristotle thought it was uh, opaque. Okay, but the greatest difference which may seem to make our earth altogether unlike the moon is because the one is a bright body and hath light of its own and the other a gross dark body which cannot shine at all. What? Tis, res- tis requisite therefore that in the next place I clear this doubt and show that the moon hath no more light of her own than our earth. Okay, thank you. I I thought you were holding the opinion that it did produce its own light. One second. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on to Proposition five. How many propositions are there? There's a whole bunch of guys. (laughs) Well, I'm gonna keep reading this till I get bored. So we'll see how many people stick with me. Let's see what five is. Five is that the moon hath not any light of her own. I like how he gives a little teaser before each proposition in the last paragraph of the the previous one. Okay, so why does the moon hath not any light of her own? "'Twas the fancy of some of the Jews, and more especially of Rabbi Simeon, that the moon was nothing else but a contracted sun, and that both those planets, at their first creation, were equal both in light and quantity, for because God did then call them both great lights, therefore they inferred that they must be both equal in bigness.'" Interesting. Okay, but a while after, as the tradition goes, the ambitious moon put up her complaint to God against the sun, showing, oh, this is starting to be like fairy tale, showing that if that it was not fit, there should be two such great lights in the heavens. A monarchy would best become the place of order and harmony. Okay, so he's, I guess they didn't believe in democracy back then. Upon this, God, upon this, God commanded her to contract herself into a narrower compass, but she being much discontented hereat, replies, what? Because I have spoken that which is reason and equity, must I there be diminished? This sentence could not choose, but much trouble her, and for this reason was she in much distress and grief for a long space but that her sorrow might be some way pacified god bid her be of good cheer because her privileges and chariot should be greater than the sun's he should appear in the day in the daytime only she both in the day and the night oh interesting but her melancholy being not satisfied with this she replied again that alas was no benefit for in the daytime she should be either not seen or not noted. Wherefore, God to comfort her promised that his people, the Israelites, should celebrate all their feasts and holy days by a computation of her months. But this being not able to content her, (laughs) she just can't be contented. She has looked very melancholy ever since. (laughs) However, she hath still reserved much light of her own. Well, that was a fun little story. God made both lights of the same size and brightness, but the moon said, well, there can't be two lights this bright. So that great suggestion, God said, okay, well, then you're going to be smaller now. And then I think uh, you guys heard the rest. Okay. Others there were that did think the moon to be a round globe, the one half of whole body hold on <laughs> the one half of whole body was of a bright substance the other half being dark and the diverse converse, conversions of those sides towards our eyes caused the variety of her appearances oh okay so one side was bright one was dark and it turned around slowly and that's why um there's phases of the moon uh, of this opinion was Berossus, as he is cited by Vitruvius, and Saint Austin thought it was probable enough. But this fancy is almost equally absurd with the former, and both of them sound rather like fables than philosophical truths. You may commonly see how this latter does contradict frequent and easy experience, for 'tis observed that the spot which is perceived about her about her middle when she is in the increase may be discerned in the same place when she is in the full yes that is empirical evidence right there so he's saying you know what we call mare on the moon the dark spots um those those spots didn't move and you could see them when the light um you know as as the moon goes through its phases so obviously it's not turning around uh okay uh. You may commonly see uh, how this latter does contradict frequent. uh, I already read that. Um, Whence it must follow that the same part which was before darkened is after enlightened, and that the one part is not always dark, and the other light is in the other light of itself but enough (laughs) but enough of this he says i would be loth to make an enemy that i may afterwards overcome him or bestow time in proving that which is already granted obviously people already know this i suppose now that neither of them hath any patrons and therefore need no confutation tis agreed upon by all sides that this planet receives most of her light from the sun but the chief controversy is whether or not she hath any of her own, Okay, so what's your argument? Let's hear it. The greater multitude affirm this. Carden, amongst the rest, is very confident of it. And he thinks that if any of us were in the moon at the time of her greatest eclipse, uh, Latin, we should perceive so great a brightness of her own that would blind us with the mere sight. And when she is enlightened by the sun, then no eagle's eye, if there were any, Any there is able to look upon her. The Cardin says, and he doth but say it without bringing any proof for this confirmation. (laughs) However, I will set down the arguments that are usually uh, urged for this opinion, and they are taken either from Scripture or reason. I like to hear the Scripture. Let's hear it. From Scripture is urged that place, 1 Corinthians 15, where it is said, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. That's the argument. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then another one urges that in Matthew 24, 22, Greek, 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 uh, the moon shall not give her light. The moon shall not give her light. Therefore, says he, she has some light of her own. Okay, whatever. But under these, we may easily answer that the glory and light there spoken of may be said to be hers, though it be derived, as you may see in many other instances. Uh, The arguments from reason are taken either. From that light which is discerned in her when there is a total eclipse of her own body or of the sun... Two, uh, sorry, I, didn't, I don't know if I said one, but that was one. Two, for the light, which is discerned in the darker part of her body when she is but a little distant from the sun. Uh, you guys, this goes on for a while. We're going to skip ahead. In fact, I think we're going to wrap this up. Um, let's see what we got after Proposition 5. Proposition 6, that there is a world in the moon... Hath been the direct opinion of many ancient with some modern mathematicians, and may probably be deduced from the tenets of others. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote. So much are we above the ancients that, whereas they were fain by their magical charms to represent the moon's approach, we cannot only bring her lower with a greater innocence but may also, with a more familiar view, behold her condition. I believe that was Johannes Fabricius. Uh, Proposition 7, that those spots are brighter parts, which by our sight may be distinguished in the moon. Do show the difference betwixt the sea and land in that other world. Ooh, okay, so he thinks those are actual oceans which is probably why we call them mare nowadays uh that's fun um number a uh, proposition eight the spots represent the sea and the brighter parts the land so i guess in proposition eight maybe he's talking about the land okay Ooh, you guys is a diagram of something, okay. Proposition nine: that there are high mountains, deep valleys, and spacious plains in the body of the moon. Mmm, drawing of the moon with these. Oh, basically, he's showing that the terminator of the moon, the border between light and dark, is not like perfect. You know, it's jagged. So that means there's moons. Now he's doing some trigonometry. Proposition 10, that there is an atmosfera. Oh my God. <laughs> ATMO dash SPH, one of those AEs. You know those AEs that are combined together? And then RA, that there is an atmosphera or an orb of gross vaporous air immediately encompassing the body of the moon. That's interesting that he's arguing that because I am almost certain that the atmosphere on the moon, there is one, but it's so tenuous that there is no way they could have detected that with the technology they had in 1638. <laughs> um, That is very interesting. And I almost want to read it. But you guys, there's a Proposition 11 as well. (laughs) That as their world is our moon. Oh, hold on. That as their world is our moon, so our world is their moon. (sighs) Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Except, I wonder if you understood that our moon rotates and that the moon doesn't well it does uh, the, technically they say that it rotates once per orbit that's what that's what uh a tidally locked body does uh a a, a a a body that always shows the same face toward the body it orbits technically does rotate once on its axis every orbit um a beautiful diagram with one of those pictures of a sun with a face. Pretty cool. Uh, Proposition 12. That tis probable there may be such meteors belonging to that world in the moon as there are with us. Okay. Maybe they saw some craters on the moon. That's what these diagrams look like wow lots of diagrams you guys I had no idea how long this was <laughs> proposition 13 proposition 13 is that tis probable there may be inhabitants in this other world but of what kind but of what kind they are is uncertain oh man I'm gonna read this quote who's this quote by who's this quote by campanella wait a minute hold on there's a there's a there's a bible quote here okay hold on hold on i want to read this bible one i found before uh okay if they were men then he thinks they could not be infected with adam's sin yet perhaps they had some of their own which might make them liable to the same misery with us, out of which perhaps they were delivered by the same means as we, the death of Christ. And thus he thinks that place of the Ephesians may be interpreted where the apostle says, God gathered all things together in Christ, both which are in earth and which are in the heavens. So also that of the same apostle to the Col- Colossians, where he says that, it pleased the Father to reconcile all things unto himself by Christ, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. I mean, that's interesting because, like I mean, dude, you guys, right now we're talking about aliens. We are straight up straight up talking about aliens in 15, I'm sorry, 1638. Uh but I find that last scripture interesting because It pleased the Father to reconcile all things unto himself by Christ, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. I mean, things in heaven, that's just, I mean, I don't know where Christians back then thought heaven was. I don't know where most of them think it is today, but like, couldn't he just be talking about like the angels angels in heaven? That's kind of a stretch to think that it's aliens on the moon. Interesting though. Um, Now I'm going to read this big, this big quote. We may conjecture, saith he, I believe this is Cusanus. maybe. We may conjecture, saith he, the inhabitants of the sun are like to the nature of that planet. Ooh, he thinks there's inhabitants on the sun. More clear and bright, more intellectual and spiritual than those in the moon, where they are nearer to the nature of the duller planet. And those of the earth being more gross and material than they, so that these intellectual natures in the sun are more, f- are more form than matter. Those in the earth more matter than form, and those in the moon betwixt the both. This we may guess from the fiery influence on the sun, the watery and airiest influence of the moon, as also the material heaviness of the earth. In some such manner, likewise, it is with the regions of the outer stars, for we conjecture that none of them are without inhabitants. Whoa! But that there are so many particular worlds and parts of this one universe as there are stars which are innumerable, unless it be to him who created all things in number. You guys, people believed in aliens back then. Crazy. Okay. Uh, this one goes on for a whoa, hold on. I just saw the number let's see eight zero 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 millions that's eight hundred thousand million so that would be um that right there is a billion that's eighty billion. I think that's eighty billion. <laughs> No, 80 trillion. I don't know. Uh, the number is referring to, let's see. For saith he, the diameter of one league being cubically multiplied will make a sphere capable of 80 billion of damned bodies, allowing to each six foot in the square, whereas, says he, Tis certain that there shall not be 100,000 millions and all that shall be damned. Whoa, getting dark here. Yeah, he's talking about hell. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, interesting. Uh that is that's everything right there. Oh, it gets heavy toward the end. <laughs> and then um, at the end, it just says the propositions that are proved in this discourse. Oh, then he just lists all the propositions of which we read five. Finis. That is very interesting. I didn't realize it was so long. And oh man, I'll be honest. I was only going to read this till I was interested and three episodes in, I was interested, but now I think I'm glad that we just kind of skipped ahead. Uh, maybe it would have been kind of cool to read that one where he straight up talks about aliens, but um, I think I'm good. I think I've read enough John Wilkins for a while. Uh, so that is going to wrap up um, the discovery of a world in the moon. I found it very interesting. Let me know what you think. If you made it this far, I am proud of you. I do want to believe that there are other people out there that think these old documents like this (laughs) about people speculating about aliens um, are interesting. So hopefully somebody got something out of this. Anyway, if you want to read it, it's on um, the Gutenberg Project. There's pretty pictures in there. They are actually kind of cool pictures. Um, So there we go. I'm going to wrap it up now. Tweet me at wetjosh. And uh, let's chat about it. (laughs) All right. We'll get to some actual science fiction next time. uh, And we'll read another story. See you then.